I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. How are the masses going in La Crosse? Have you prevented any COVID spread by your personal interventions in the My diocese? personal intervention? I don't know about that. I try to do the best you can. We had our first mass last week. It's all right. In your newly renovated church? No, it has to be uh, dedicated first, and that's uh, all been postponed, so we're still in the basement. How about you, Jesse? You been back to mass yet? Yeah, we had mass on Sunday, although I, they're still trying to get everything going. Plus, our parish pastor is becoming a bishop in july uh he's being installed in july so we're going to get a new pastor at the same time as all of this is happening but Mm -hmm. the funny thing and i know this was just kind of an organizational issue but um we were there was no singing but everybody was wearing a mask Mm -hmm. and so i think those two things kind of uh um it, it was a little redundancy right there because the whole thing about not singing is that you're not spreading anything more but we're wearing a mask so theoretically that would not have been an issue so i I think they're going to address some of that stuff coming up this weekend but yeah first time back it was weird it was like um solemn in a way you know Mm -hmm. uh you know and you have the whole thing you know right before the holy holy and they say and the angels sing and then everyone just says holy Holy, yeah. holy love. No Sunday mass. <laughs> Actually, there's a kind of blessing in not having music, I have to say, a lot of the time. Oftentimes it's... Dennis more, McNamara. What? It's often Edit offensive. that out, Jesse. No. I know it's normative, but sometimes it's better to not have it than to have bad versions of it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that's not what we're here for. I what agree are with we you here that. for? We are here to glorify God and sanctify mankind. That's right. And hello. Through yeah. language. You know, my niece has these friends at Binghamton... University, Binghamton University in New York, her boyfriend, v, uh, Vito, and his friend, Patrick, they are like major listeners to us, and they like us a lot. So, hello. They are not Patreon supporters, though, as we shamed them last time. But we're, we'll give them time. When they get jobs, they can support us. I have no problem shaming people into becoming Patreon supporters. That's how we got the people we have now, I think. And I think it's a good reminder, right? This podcast, although nobody gets paid for being host of it except Chris's exorbitant demands in his contract actually has expenses right <laughs> editing expenses hosting expenses so patreon supporters thank you there's a real real expense for this all right enough of that liturgy so, to come part three of part of three parts right I'm never get tired three parts of liturgy Amathenticom. it's just such an amazing document we're trying to buoy Chris through the end of yeah the- so where did we leave oh, off documented out at around 20. 20- <laughs> Uh oh! Somebody called an ambulance. <laughs> Chris is tired of documents. <laughs> we were like twenty eight, twenty nine. I think where we left off is that we should not uh, get rid of uh, words that are unusual, and if they're unnormal, if they're not normal everyday speech. We can keep them because they become memor- uh, memorable and capable of expressing heavenly realities. So it's words like "alleluia." We talked about "consubstantial." Some of these, you know, words that are not English anymore. I mean, who really knows what Alleluia means? But we just say it and we intuitively know um, what it is. Do you know what it means, actually? 
I don't know what its literal meaning is. Jesse can look that up. Well. I think it's something like uh, Hallel. You know these uh, oh, yeah, right. Hallel Psalms, why not songs of praise? And the uh, Yah part is like a, a shorthand of Yahweh. So it's, I think it means praise God, literally. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very Minnesota. I think that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse's our fact checker. Right. So you could have translated hallelujah into praise God, which might make a little more sense logically, but it would lose that deep connection to things in the past. So, um, you know, one of the points that Sergio Methendicum makes there in 29 is that when you use, you leave words in the liturgy that may not be clear, but the task of the homily and the catechesis to set forth the meaning. And that's part of the balance. You know, you say, oh, okay, we want these liturgical words to um, be self-explanatory in a way, not unduly complicated. On the other hand, if you start explaining everything, it starts becoming a boring expository textbook and not a cry from the heart. Praise God, praise God. Yeah. No, but I... The- we, we address this a lot, Dennis, when we were doing the, the translation of, of the missile is, you know, people say, well, how are people supposed to know what this means? And, and I remember Father Martis would just say, well, you tell them. <laughs> how, how does yeah. any of us know anything except that our parents, our pastors, our teachers taught us? And now we know things. It, it, it works the same way. So, yeah, there's yeah. a little catechesis with uh, using language. How are we supposed to know what Jeremiah is talking about? How are we supposed to know what Genesis is about? You tell them, right? Yeah. I've been watching reruns of uh, Password Plus. Do you remember that show from the olden days? Never heard of it. Never heard of Password Plus? Well, you're too young. How is that different than just regular Password? I don't know, but there is a plus. Anyway, it's full of all these biblical, like for some reason, because it's from the 70s, I guess, there are all these biblical puzzles that you have to figure out. And some of them, I was like, I don't really know any of this stuff, but it was much more in common parlance back then. The, 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 The answer would be Jeremiah, and they would give these odd clues and people would get it. Now it's kind of funny because they wouldn't mean as much uh, to anyone. But that's always the challenge in all of this, right? How, do, how much do you adapt to the modern times so people know what you're talking about? How much do you maintain the continuity so that these higher ideas and longer established connections can be but, uh, And kept? modernity keeps going while the language has to stay there. And so I would imagine that that was a big thought process in this whole thing is, um, you know, planning for the future future growth in language as well. And at what point were they going to make, um, you know, considerations for modern language? Well, that's one of the challenges of using the vernacular in general, right? As a living language, it's going to change every so often. And uh, we might have a mass in memes. Well, if that, there's actually some <laughs> jokes about that, you know, emoji masses and stuff like that. Um, is that going to be real? Who knows? Who can predict what's going to be normative? So, it's just part of the problem of vernacular language is that if it's changing around you and the mass changes, you can't change it every day. So you have to maintain the continuity. You know, 30 and, and forward talks about some of the hot button issues, especially around gender. Right? Because man, for a long time, meant humanity in general. And then the last couple of decades, it's been changed around to man and woman or, you know, you can't say woman um, a lot of these uh, times. And we don't have a word that is gender neutral in a sense to say mankind, right? Like other languages might. Isn't man? Well, it has been traditionally. Yeah. Right. You know, you know, the, you know, people talk about the pronoun wars where they say like, you know, God and God's church instead of God and his church. And it reminds me of like, whenever you go to a Cubs game in the seventh inning stretch, you sing, you know, root, root, root for the, and then like, 
you want to make you want to make it known what who you're rooting for, and so you you say it extra loud, and you're like Cubbies, but then there's people who are in the back saying what they want to root for in the back, like the visiting team. Is that what you mean? Right, right. Yeah, but that's that's a good example, though. I mean, uh, on the one hand, what the translation is supposed to do is have an eye or an ear, I suppose, on uh, the modern language, but another one. And the principal one on the theological content, the substance, and man is one of these examples. And what Liturgiam Authenticam will say is that it's it's a theologic it has theological content to use the word man. I think the words it uses is it it expresses the the singularity and the unity of the the human race, and yep. so it needs to be retained uh, on some occasions because it's it's speaking about uh, th- this group that Christ. Uh, came to save by becoming like us. So it's, it's on the one hand, it's got to ring a little bit uh, true to the modern ear, but on the other hand, it has to be an accurate and authentic, I guess you could say, uh, yes. expression of, of the liturgical language. So you can imagine the, the translators, they used to meet at Mundelein when, when we were there and they would come for a week and there'd be all these experts in languages and Bible and they would sit in a room and they would each proposed translations and they would compare and then they would try to work it out. Really complicated stuff. How do you solve the problem of men? You know, if you say he became men, a lot of people are going to be miffed. If you say something else and you know, the, they have to work according to the guidelines given here. And so for instance, it doesn't say, it says you shouldn't translate from singular to plural. Like we have the he and she becomes they a lot of times now so that you don't have a gendered uh, word. And so it's a tough um, thing, but it, you know, the document says the church must freely decide the system that will serve her doctrinal mission most effectively. And so there you go. The freedom to do what is best while preserving, they call the integral sense of the word in the original text. So I'm glad I didn't have to do that. I don't know about, about you. Yeah, we're, um, we're working uh, through uh, Adoramus and LTP. We're working on a translation of a Romano Gardini book right now that's never mm-hmm. come into English called uh, Liturgy and Liturgical Formation. And uh, I don't know German at all, but just the, just going through this process, uh, this is probably as close as I've been involved with the translation process. It is really difficult to translate German from the 1920s into uh, English of the 2020s, where you're trying to retain the original sense of the author's meaning, Romano Gardini in this sense, but make it something that people today can uh, hear and benefit from. Right. When you try to look at a dictionary, there's like four or five or six different words that can be translated. So you look up a word in the Latin dictionary and there's like five words that, that could be in the, there's the editor or translator has to decide which one has the best import. I was, yeah. I was listening to our Gothic uh, podcast from a long time ago and some of um, Abbot Suget's writings and said somewhere between the slime of the earth and the glory of heaven. I was like, maybe the word isn't slime. Maybe the word is like matter or dust or something. Mm-hmm. And, that choice makes a difference. Slime has all this negative connotations that I don't think Abba Suje meant. Yeah, well, in, in this uh, this uh, Gardini book, he uses this term soul care, soul care. Yeah. And uh, who, I've never heard the expression soul care before. I think today we would say pastoral care or pastoral care of souls or something like that. But do you leave it in the original and nobody knows what it means? Or do you make Romana Gardini speak like a uh, postmodern American? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Then it, then it would be Soul Cycle. Soul Glow. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, Chris, I, Chris, I do have another question. 
how does this relate, everything that we're talking about translation relate to that episode, one of my favorites, uh, Pete and Repeat, where we're talking about repetition and uh, device, literary devices mm-hmm. used to encourage, you know, memorization and retention of the language. Mm-hmm. Does, does this document touch on any of that at all? Exactly, it does. I don't know which paragraph it is, Dennis. Maybe you can find it, but it was, was talking about... 27, I think. Yeah, uh, consonants and uh, uh, alliteration and assonance and uh, uh, anadiplosis and mm-hmm. uh, asyndeton and polysyndeton and all these things. Oh, my gosh, poly. And the, uh, uh, you know, what, see, what, what Liturgium Authenticum is trying to do is strike a certain tone of the language that does justice to the one who's speaking it. But also justice to God, because, you know, just like when your mother would say, don't you talk to me in that tone of voice? You know, we speak to God in a particular tone of voice, too. And so um, especially when we come together for liturgical prayer. Now, as we said, I think at the last time in your private prayer, you talk to God, you know, however your 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 own temperament, personality and needs, circumstances uh, might uh, require. But when the church prays to God, there's a certain syntax and vocabulary and uh, literary excellence that's supposed to be a part of the text. So, yeah, all of those things are involved in a translation. So, like Dennis was saying, there's so many things to account for in a translation. Yeah, and you know, it struck me today, mm -hmm. today's gospel was Christ giving the Our Father a prayer. So here's the gospel lectionary translated into modern English, and all of a sudden the Our Father is Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Words that we don't use. But the Our Father was preserved in its sort of archaic English with these and thous. And, you know, if you've heard Bishop Barron talk, he talks about daily bread is actually a super substantial bread. Um, and which means, you know, something more than the substance of bread, this sort of supernatural bread. And I thought, oh, daily, you know, it's just really not as good as super substantial. But they're preserving the word in its archaic form and. I kind of wanted an updated translation. Believe me. Yeah. If, if people are flipping out about consubstantial, they'll definitely flip out about super substantial. <laughs> yeah. No. That. But you know, even the the Lord's Prayer was accounted for in Liturgiam Authenticum. They wanted, if there were particular prayers that were part of the people's popular devotion, that they they wanted a parallel between those, so you didn't have one version of the Our Father. Uh, that you'd pray, you know, before bed with your kids, and then a different version of the Our Father that you'd pray when you come to Mass. You know, another maybe another application of this is, you know, you guys who pray the Liturgy of the Hours. How's the how's the Gloria Patri rendered in the current Liturgy of the Hours? Oh, that's the famous ISIL version. Right? Yes, yes. There's uh, the Glory, glory to, and then the Glory to, right? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Right. Instead so you have two child. versions of the glory to the father. Well, I, I think that when, and they're working on this now, retranslating the liturgy, of the hours, I think that translation like the Lord's prayer will come into line with what you would pray outside of the liturgy as well. Right, so, it is confusing. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a hundred, 200, 300 principles <laughs> that are uh, operative here in making a liturgical translation. And, you know, Dennis, I don't know how many more of these particular ones you want to mention, but I think that either now or later, I mean, the question that maybe some people are asking is like, well, why don't we just keep this all in Latin and then you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. You don't have any of these problems at all. Well, that was a claim against the vernacular in the 30s, 40s, 50s that 
you know, you could just have a Latin English missile and uh, you could pay attention and do a little work and you could understand the words. You know, remember we read that uh, famous address from Paul VI right before the new missile came out and he was talking about practically crying in this address about moving Ooh, that's the great, a good one. I the love great, it. Uh, tradition of Latin and chant and, you know, the profane language was going to come in, you know, profane intruders. But he said, what's more important? Understanding transformation of the mind and heart and the, you know, sanctification of the world. Now, maybe that was naive to think, oh, if it's in the vernacular, all this stuff will happen. But at least that was the that was the logic. When I go to a low mass now in extraordinary form, it does take a good amount of work to know what the collect is, you know, what the post-communion prayer is, where the priest is in the mass and that kind of stuff. And you have to kind of look it up. It would be nice to just hear it directly and understand it. Were you yeah. going somewhere with that, with that, Chris? Well, no, but I think that's um... – I mean, that's a fundamental question that needs to be answered, you know, about uh, about these translations. You know, and I think what um, obviously people have different opinions on this. So that what the, the church's mind on why it's important, I think, to that, that the liturgy is translated is uh, because what the language is supposed to do is mentioned this before. It has to do justice to two groups of persons. On the one hand, the persons of the Trinity it has to be an authentic reflection of their glorious uh, divinity. On the well, other hand, it, to each other. what's that? Persons yeah, of the Trinity right. speak Latin to each other. <laughs> that's right. Uh, on the other hand, it has to, I mean, it matters if you can understand and speak the language because uh, language, just like the music, the ministers, sacred time, art and architecture, uh, all of these things are, uh, remember what Sacrosanctum Concilium says is that uh, in the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is, uh, what does it say, is, is affected by signs, um, by signs perceptible to the senses and is brought about in a way which corresponds to each of these signs. If you don't understand the signs, what's at stake is your potential divinization and God's glory. So that's why it's important that the that language, you know, have, a, a as I say, an eye or an ear on both groups of persons. And I would say, too, that, you know, the sacramental system is such that Christ comes to us and we come to Christ in the sacramental sign. And language is a particular, this is a very Pope Benedict thing here. But what, a lot of what his theology brought to the surface is that language is perhaps the most privileged of the liturgy's sacramental signs because this redeemer that we have is himself a word, word a word. And we so the, the, words. the words of the mass are, have a special, I, I, I think efficacy to make audible the word of the Trinity and to get this wrong uh, through bad translations or to use translations that, you know, don't reflect that or are inaudible to the people or not to be translated at all, which, of course, you know, the Latin is a translation of the early Roman Rite liturgy itself, uh, then something is not as potentially fruitful as it could be for the people. So That's a, that's a good point, Chris. I think mostly um, the, the thing that is most consistent across all liturgies, e even though there's a diversity of uh, liturgical rites in our in our church today and one parish might do things one way, but the language is the thing that is the most constant across every liturgy. And I think that's very important to recognize. So that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as it moves along and talks about, uh, I'm looking at 41, 42 here. 
um, talking about using words that have been used continuously in the tradition, immemorial tradition, it says there in uh, 41C. Um, when it comes to scripture, it says the translator should bear in mind that scripture is not just a historical document. And here's this little tension, and we've been talking about these tensions, right? Because we, we like to hang around in the, in the tense middle rather than the angry edges of the spectrum. <laughs> While always maintaining due regard for the norm of fidelity to the original text. Okay, so always wanting to be true to the text. One should strive wherever there is a choice to make those choices that will enable the hearer to recognize himself and the dimensions of his own life as vividly in, as possible in the persons and the events of the text. So that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? You have to translate this in a way that the content of Revelation is preserved. But on the other hand, that the person listening could say, oh, yeah, I could see myself in that situation. I could be in, I could really see that vivid participation in that uh, historical event or sacred uh, revelation. Something like a movie, you know, if a, if, a, if a director really wants the participants of the movie to feel participatory in the, in the events of the movie, how would they do that? How would they get you to understand and identify with uh, character and story. Yeah, I think the word vivid is a good one, too. It's the character, I think, of the Hebrew language, certainly of the of, uh, Latin language. It's very concrete and vivid and uh, sensible uh, versus being more abstract. Uh, and so it's it's, you know, like, like, for example, you remember the Sanctus uh, Holy? What, what, what was the old translation? Does anybody even remember? Holy, 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 Lord, God of God power of and might. Okay. Oh, yeah. and so it's power and might. Okay. Uh, but it, it kind of skips a step. I mean, power and might uh, adhere or abide or are embodied in more concrete things. And so now we say, holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. And once somebody teach you what hosts is, you can picture this army of angels and saints and thrones and dominions and principalities and all of the rest. Well, this is uh, this is one of those vivid, concrete, sensible, more sensible images. I know angels aren't sensible. Uh, that it characterizes uh, the Latin language and the the Roman rite versus philosophical abstractions and whatnot. Yeah. What if Jesse were just a philosophical abstraction and not a person? Hey, that might have been the most insulting thing you've ever said to me in the history of this podcast. Yeah, with a kind of a philosophical, yeah, reducing you to a philosophical abstraction is to lose your personness. Right? So, so as this uh, document comes to a close, Dennis, you kind of oh. mentioned that. <laughs> um, well, before we close it there's I think one at least one more really important okay. point of and um, they're talking about prayers and how you translate them in the, based on the history um, but again it says you shouldn't be surprised that this language will differ from ordinary speech and in fact the translation of the text with these unusual words will actually facilitate the development of a sacred a sacral vernacular and I don't know that people think of that very often but you know like if someone says mea culpa where does that come from? Well, that's right out of liturgy, and it comes into the normal everyday speech. So even now, hosts, Lord God of hosts, well, what does that mean? Well, I never really thought about it, but now that we say it every Sunday, that's a word that's on my lips. So choosing the right word, although it may be odd at first, can actually develop a vernacular and have an influence on everyday speech in the culture, uh, as it says here, that as it did in the languages of peoples evangelized long ago. So there you go. Okay, now, Jesse, you want to bring this to an end? I do. Um, so I, I think, first of all, the, the thing that uh, 
the these three episodes have kind of given me is first of all an understanding that this is a very difficult task and that you know when people off the cuff try to maybe complain about the language that we use i think they should understand that <laughs> a lot goes into this and it's very mm-hmm. difficult and so you have these two things you know you it, it should be something that inspires the general person to be able to uh, be, be able to approach what's actually happening in the liturgy but then it also has to have a sense of the sacred at the same time and that is a very hard line to walk sometimes especially as our language grows and grows and the sacred remains the same foundation and so we have to figure out you know sometimes new ways to do that but um you know i i never knew the depth of the 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 conditions that it takes to actually translate language and it should mm-hmm. you know so the, the most the document itself recognizes that in paragraph 75 when it says the translation of the text requires uh, not only a rare degree of expertise but also a spirit of prayer and trust in divine assistance granted not only to the translators but to the church herself so it's an interesting admission that you need human expertise but the holy spirit has to come and and help and so if you just come in as an arrogant classic scholar demanding that you know everything that's a little different than saying how am i going to surrender myself to the action of the holy spirit to, to shed light on these words for the world yeah i remember one presentation i think it was in uh, ohio somewhere and we were talking about you know it's taken the 50 it's taken the church 50 years to learn how to translate and this one uh, uh priest said what i mean we didn't know how to translate latin 50 years ago and you know i think we just getting at or the point we were trying to get at is it's not enough just to know how to handle third declension, I stem, neuter, nouns, or something like that. It's that all of this, all, all of the, these things that we've been talking about, the threads we've been talking about are a part of that package deal. And it, it has sort of proceeded with, uh, with a bit of trial and error over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Although so, I have Chris, to say, those oh, old, go ahead, you know, those old hand missiles that you use for the, Extraordinary form. Oftentimes their English was pretty darn good and it seemed to get a lot worse in 1970. And I think part of that was the hijacking of the political terms and the, and some of the uh, movements that were in the air at at the time. And so now we're sort of with this document, I think back on a, a good solid foundation. Yeah, although it, I, I don't know the exact history of this, Dennis. Maybe you do. I mean, sometimes the translations were pretty darn bad intentionally because they didn't want uh, these most sacred of words to be, I don't know, a, a part of uh, safeguarding their sacrality was not to sort of profane them by rendering them too accurately into kind of a mundane or modern that is language. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for I don't know, probably I'm, I'm just guessing here, Pius X, maybe it was forbidden to make translations, say, uh, certainly of, of the canon. I'm pretty sure about mm-hmm. that. Right. Um, yeah, but then we get, do you remember a podcast we talked about uh, the Anabali Bunini uh, paraphrase masses? So this is in the 40s. Uh, they would write on placards just paraphrases of what the Latin was. And for a while there, I mean, that really lived on because some of the translations after the council were not translations at all, but were paraphrases of what uh, the, the, the missile had said. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot going on there. You know, and even... Um, may, we, do you remember, Dennis, do you remember how a uh, bill becomes a law? I hope and I pray that someday 
But today I'm still just a bill. Yeah. Okay. So if, you, if, you, if you think how to translate is difficult, the process of how these translations get approved oh, is equally sort of goodness. mysterious. Green so. books, white books, green I've books. been ratified. Now yeah. I'm a law. But you know yeah. what you can't say is that this did not involve years and years and lots of participation, right? Every bishop in the country Absolutely. got to read it. They had their experts read it. They had people they sent to the discussions. They went back and forth to Rome through like 18 layers of back and forth. It was very, very collaborative. Yeah. And even, you know, around the world, I mean, ISIL, which is this group, International Commission on English and the Liturgy, they're doing work for the English language mass in Pakistan and mm-hmm. South Africa and New Zealand and uh, Canada. Canada. Right. It's uh, yeah. all over. So you're right. It's um, uh, it, it's there's been a lot of uh, input into these. So anyway. All right. So there you go. Next time you go to mass, realize, hey, a lot of people, I don't know how many thousands of person hours were involved in this, but it's got to be multiple seven, you know, six mm-hmm. figures at least of hours. So there you have it, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Dennis. Do we have a liturgy question? I don't know. Let me ask Chris. Chris, do we have a liturgy question? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're off the hook. No, we're doing a liturgy <laughs> question. I'm holding you to that. And uh, um, by the way, I forgot to tell you, Chris, we have to we're you know since we're all in different states now and new legal things with this podcast Solid, liquid gas we're gonna, yeah, yeah, some yeah dennis is in a gas state for sure wow um but uh we're gonna have to get insurance on your beard so yeah. don't, don't do anything on that uh but if something happens it's insured because okay. it's, uh, it's part of our brand now okay excellent all right to the liturgy question <laughs> i was hoping you would do that So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? So, Jesse, we have a question. Dennis, do you have a question for me? The question is... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this question comes from CJ, and CJ sent me a picture, actually, (laughs) and it's a picture of a uh, baptism where the priest has, uh, he's got his COVID mask on, and he's got a squirt gun, and he's aiming it at a baby. And uh, he wants to... I think it came out that it was like a posed picture just as a joke that somebody thought. Yes. But it does lend the question, Jesse, and what is that question? The question is, uh, would a baptism done this way be efficacious and or licit? That's what CJ asks. So valid or licit. Well, you're, you're the king of yeah. licit, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I am licity. Isn't that mm-hmm. what uh, you said, Louis, the what's-his-name said? 14th, yeah. Licity, yeah. c'est moi. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, well, I think the term, you know, the question is, would it be valid and would it be licit? So valid means would it actually happen 
the baptism, the baptism, would, it, would the person be baptized? Yeah. And then the Lysady question is, would it be according to uh, liturgical Hoyle, the rubrics, if it happened? So the the, law, yeah. to the second would be no, that, no, no, that's completely c- contrary to um, what the rubrics call for. That has not uh, received the recognitio. No, no. Uh, water gun now, but now it, it's not entirely unrelated, which I guess means it's related. It, sometimes in the tradition, they would baptize with an aspergellum, a sprinkler. Yeah. yeah. And uh, oh, the, the asparagus yes, thing? The asparagus or even thing. a pile of stick. You know, like when they do the, sometimes before mass, they have a group of sticks sure, and sprinkling sure. with you. Uh, aspergellum. So, is is would baptism that way that would still be illicit but um its validity is questioned uh, i think the water has to make be sure to hit the head and flow over the head so that's uh, that's dubious but uh i think if uh the i think if he said the words and the water hit the head it would be valid i think yeah but if you pour it out of a shell or something you're not actually touching the water with the priest's hand right it's right, it's right. there's a, nothing about the the priest touching the yeah the, the water. It's not great Arshala Brandi, but it could No, be. no. See, yeah. but you know, the, it's, it's a good example of, you know, kind of the strange times we're in with this pandemic. I mean, think, I mean, at what point do you cross a line, right? To imagine uh, a baptism all according to the books, just as it's written. Okay. Now say uh, you're going to adapt that so that the priest has to wear a mask, Okay. All right. Well, that's a little bit outside of the norm. Now, and let's say the the, the paint. Does it have to? Does it have to be the same uh, liturgical feast day color? Like, does it have to be no, green Jesse. if he's wearing no, the green chasuble? Okay. Now, let's say the priest has to wear a face shield. Okay. Now you're getting a little bit farther out of it. Now, let's say the priest has to wear a hazmat suit. Mm. Now you're getting a little farther away. Now let's say that the priest is just going to stand 12 feet away and, you know, with a, with a squirt gun or a hose or a bucket <laughs> or whatever, it's just going to throw water. You know, it's somewhere along that lot, that progression, you know, the first one, all right, the priest's going to wear a face mask. You say, okay, that seems a reasonable precaution, not that far outside of the norm, but the, on the other extreme, you know, the priest just dumping a bucket of water from 12 feet away or using a squirt gun. You know, I think most people say, all right, this, we've crossed a line somewhere. But the question is, where was the line? And according to, uh, to, to what authority is the line there? I mean, because all of those options are outside of, they're all illicit. <laughs> they're all outside of the norms. So this is, uh, you know, and now apply this to confirmations and masses and confessions and things, you know, drive through communions. At what point does it just get so far outside of the norm that it, it become it's not a viable option anymore? But you know. if I if I were a priest, I would be like I'd be arming myself with two super soakers mm-hmm. uh, filled with holy water. And then I'd have like an ammo bo- b- uh, belt of like water balloons and I'd just go. Yeah, baptizing. Well, that's, a, that's one of the many reasons, Jesse, why you are why you are not a priest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're talking about, you know, where that line is. I was able to go to confession for the first time in three months. And um, I'm, I'm walking in. The confessional was in the sacristy of my parish. So I walk in and the priest was like, OK, hold on. Uh, you know, six feet. Just, you know, you don't have to come any closer or whatever. There was still a screen there. But then I'm thinking like, OK, first of all, 
you know, practically, you know, if you have to be six feet away, you have to be, you have to speak a little Mm -hmm. louder and then you have to make sure people can't hear your confession. And then I'm thinking, oh, like, well, how far away could you be from a priest to actually have a valid confession? Because we all know you can't do it over the phone or through Zoom or whatever. But like, you know, like that's what you're talking about. You know, you're adding these things to it and like how far away do you have to be? And so those are interesting things. And I don't know know if I said it here in the podcast, but I know I was talking to somebody about it. If you go to an old church, sometimes you'll see those old amplifiers that are in the confessionals. They're like little phones that people with hearing difficulties could pick up and it would amplify. Like when you're in prison yeah, talking to somebody? Like that it was right next inside the confessional, right next to the screen. So there you're actually using an electronic device to speak to the priest and hear the priest, except that you happen to be, you know, one, two feet away from each other. But if it's three feet, five feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, the next building, you know, like when does it become no longer valid or licit? Interesting questions in interesting times. Well, yeah. Well, unfortunately, they used to be just theor- uh, hypothetical questions you could talk about in class and whatnot, but now they're <laughs> real questions. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we are here right, to give Steve. real answers. The mm-hmm. liturgy guys. <laughs> <laughs> One last trump. The final right. trump. <laughs> Chris is down <laughs> on the desk. <laughs> All right, see. <laughs> All right, CJ, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Supertaster, comma parentheses, tastes more than you do. Close parentheses. Or you could find all the listing of prisoners in the state of Wisconsin and see if there's a guy with the last name Carson's and just double check if maybe he actually was imprisoned over all of his illicit opinions on liturgical policies. But probably not. I don't think you'd get a hold of them. The Swiss card <laughs> come to take me away. <laughs> All right. Thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.